Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. Today, we have some very special guests on, good friends of mine, uh, Ben Lida and his daughter, Eden. And uh, this is going to be a really exciting episode for a lot of reasons. Um, bringing Shakespeare into our schools is really important. And Ben has done it very well and has a lot of experience making Shakespeare very approachable and fun and has awakened the art of drama in many students that I know that I even have connections with. And um, so I wanted to have him and his daughter Eden on the program. I was recently speaking with Eden and her excitement and enthusiasm as a teenager for Shakespeare and drama is very contagious. And I know that you will be blessed today when you hear her stories as well. We're gonna start off with Ben and I'd like him to tell a little bit of his background and then we'll jump straight into the list of questions I've got. Uh, thank you, Adrian. I'm so happy to be here, and congratulations on launching your uh, new website and podcast. Uh, well, uh, I am. Uh, I started an education uh, some 20 years ago in public school, and after several years of doing that, I realized that uh, my uh, philosoph uh, philosophy of education just was not in accord with what we were doing in public schools. Of course, I knew that, but it gets to a point where uh, you just can't do it anymore. Uh, and so I uh, ended up going to Ambleside uh, School in Fredericksburg. Um, I was blown away by what they were doing uh, because they put into practice a lot of theories and made them work. And I saw a living education happening right here in Texas in Fredericksburg, uh, which was exactly the kind of education I wanted to bring back to my hometown of Denton, uh, where we opened a school, uh, Charlotte Mason inspired school there called St. George School uh, and ran that for a few years. Unfortunately, uh, it was a casualty of uh, the economy and COVID, uh, and it couldn't continue. So now I'm teaching in um, Fort Worth at a large classical school. Now, uh, as far as Shakespeare goes, though, there's a, there's a deeper story. Uh, we actually, uh, I should say myself, I was in a, a faculty meeting uh, in a large ISD in North Texas. And uh, one day, the curriculum director for this ISD asked this department question. She said, uh, do we really need Julius Caesar anymore in the high school curriculum? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. My jaw dropped. Right. <laughs> and uh, I started, I don't remember what I started saying because I was so shocked by the idea of dropping Shakespeare in a high school curriculum. Uh, and this is arguably by state standards, one of the better school districts in the state. Uh, and um I started saying something, who knows what, and she said to me, don't give me your philosophy, give me something I can tell the board, which is exactly what she said. And wow. so I dropped, yeah, I dropped the uh, buzzword, which is college readiness. And so I said, well, college readiness. And she said, okay. So I saved Shakespeare that day <laughs> for who knows how long. 
but since then, I, I felt this uh, slipping away of many classics, but especially Shakespeare, uh, which is bedrock to language uh, in the English language. And I wanted to do something about it. Um, I didn't even I don't even know at the time if I could express why Shakespeare was important. I just instinctively knew it was. Well, we were also homeschooling at the time, uh, and we decided, my wife and I, that this is actually something we could provide for homeschoolers in our community, uh, an experience of Shakespeare. So not just a dry, dead reading uh, in like you tend to get in high school, but an actual experience of Shakespeare, uh, where children as young as nine years old can come and experience Shakespeare for themselves and begin to love Shakespeare. And so I started the Children's Shakespeare Academy in which we produced full productions of Shakespeare plays. I abridged them a bit um, for parts that were very antiquated or obscure, uh, occasionally, as you know, Shakespeare for content. Uh, but generally, they were doing the entire production of various Shakespeare plays, children as young as nine. Uh, and this was another big, important part for me, and this comes from another experience. I have my own children, and we took them to Shakespeare in the Park in Dallas uh, when my oldest were about maybe six and eight, I think. and. Um, I just remember very clearly uh, there was a couple sitting on their blanket in front of us, turned around and said, so did you bring a iPad for them? Ha ha ha. Oh, wow. <laughs> this, you know, it's just like the culture, the mindset we're in is so sad. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I said, no, they're going to watch the play. And they did. Now, I know the six-year-old and Eden was one of them. She was the six-year-old, the six-year-old and the eight-year-old. <laughs> yeah. I know they didn't understand every word. It was a Midsummer Night's Dream, but I remember them laughing their heads off. I remember them being so enchanted and enjoying the show. Do and you, you don't, that? and yeah, you actually, no. yeah, and you don't want them to understand everything, especially the stuff that's, you know, a little mature. <laughs> you you well, kind of want that to go over their heads, right? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's a fallacy to think that they have to understand every word in order to understand. Right. Uh, and in order to have the experience that's necessary to develop that relationship with the content. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, I think that Charlotte Mason said this best when she said, it's not about how much they know, but how much they care. Mm -hmm. So what's that? We do that in our, we say that quote in our, uh, in Caridian at school. It's an excellent quote and very important, uh, because as we, um, educate children to think they have to understand every word uh, before we present them to uh, present the the ideas to them. Um, we're really just uh, we're not feeding them well enough. We're not feeding them well enough with, uh, you know, all the richness of language uh, when we're talking about literature. Um, so. So in short, we started the Children's Shakespeare Company with children as young as nine, as old as 18. And the first play we did is guess what? Julius Caesar. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a pretty big one, too. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, and there's a lot of practical aspects about the choices I make for shows. Um, for an example, although there's a huge cast in Julius uh, Caesar, it's a, it's a script that's really easy to combine roles. There's like, you know, I don't know, probably 15 different senator characters, but you just make them into one senator and they can do a lot of the job. And so you have to take in uh, consideration how big your cast is uh, and which show you're going to do. Uh, generally, if you have 12 actors, any Shakespeare show can be done, although you might have to either combine characters or have uh, actors play more than one part. Um, but he worked with a, a ready cast, and so he was always 
uh, writing plays with a certain number of people in mind. So 12 is a pretty safe number. 16 is probably better. Uh, we started, you know, probably our first show maybe had 11. Uh, so we combined a few parts and, you know, and I cut a few parts, things like that. Sometimes you have to make those uh, necessary arrangements. The production was so low. Uh, it was kids bringing their like capes and dress up from home. Uh, and it was packed into our little hall in our church. And uh, the stage was like a, a three by four platform with a rug <laughs> on it. Um, so, but it only took a few years and uh, it caught on very quickly. And sure enough, the children as young as nine began to love Shakespeare and they came back and they came back and they came back. Uh, and so it grew to the point where we were able to rent the theater on the square in Denton um, and have, uh, I think we had two performances. We probably had over 200 people attending in those shows. Uh, we had professional lighting. We had uh, costumes made by hand. Uh, it was a beautiful production. Uh, and that was probably the highlight of the Children's Shakespeare Academy. Oh, I love it. So I know that you put some fun twists on your productions, and uh, I've I've enjoyed seeing a few of them. And I'd like to hear you talk about, like, what some of those twists are and why, why you did that. Well, a fun thing about Shakespeare is because he's so universal uh, in understanding what it means to be human and, and what that human experience is, um, that you really can, as I've seen in films before, you really can change the setting without completely changing the story. So I do like to have a lot of fun, and I try to bring the students something different every time, something they haven't done before with Shakespeare. So uh, a more recent example is just this last summer. Uh, we put on The Tempest, which that story, if you, if you uh, aren't familiar with that story, uh, there's a island, and there are exiles on there, Prospero and his daughter, and there's some strange kind of magical creatures on the island. And then another ship who happens to be his enemies who sent him there in the first place in a storm, they crash on that island and there's all kinds of adventures that take place. So I thought, well, what if we put this uh, on a planet uh, in outer space and uh, let's just say a spaceship crashed and uh, all those little magical creatures are various aliens. Mm -hmm. And so this last summer, we put the Tempest into a 1960s B movie where Prospero oh. looked a little bit like David Bowie and <laughs> Ariel was a robot, uh, complete with uh, dryer vent legs, you know? <laughs> oh, that is so fun. The one I saw the uh, Taming of the Shrew, which was uh, Texas. Tell, tell a little bit about that one. Yeah, I thought uh, the Texas theme, the kind of, Old West theme for uh, Taming the Shrew was very appropriate. Uh, besides, there's a couple of random lines like something about rope tricks and things like that. Uh, if you're familiar with that story, I know you are, uh, but for some of your listeners out there in that story, there is a shrew, which is an ill-tempered woman who would actually use violence against her sister. She was untamed, which is the language of the play, uh, a very bad person you wouldn't want to marry off. But in those days, uh, the older sister had to be married first. She was the oldest sister. So there were, the whole story is like, we got to get Kate married off, but nobody wants to marry her before her younger sister, Bianca, can actually move forward with her life. And so in comes Petruccio, who decides, I'm going to tame the shrew. Okay, well, there's some machismo thing going on there. It had to be appropriate. And I thought, well, okay, the Old West, you kind of have that culture going on. It seemed to work. And I felt like at the end of the day, it did. So we did. We had 
saddles and we had lassos and we had cowboys and uh the end of the day you know if you were watching oklahoma or our westernized version of uh a taming of the shrew i think you'd probably see a little a little uh congruence yeah it was great fun it was great fun i really love that you do that i think it's 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 a neat idea the kids seem to love it and i think it's enjoyable for the audience um you know, it was it was really fun for me to see the Taming of the Shrew set in Texas. It was like, oh, what a neat idea! It worked. It worked great, and you didn't even have to compromise the lines to do no. it. Um, but no, you, you brought you brought in kind of a, the music style was you know Texan, and it was it was hilarious. And I loved that you did it outside, and you utilized the 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 big trees, and the kids were climbing the trees and jumping off the tree. It was hilarious. It was so good. Oh, and you're such a great audience member. You were laughing louder, I think, than anybody else out there. You had such a good time that night. It was, and I think it was about 30 degrees, too, but we had about oh, yeah, 100 people come out. But you were selling hot chocolate, and yeah. it, was, it was great. It was, <laughs> And it we was lit so a fire fun. pit and just kind of kept everybody as cozy as we could, it and was, we had a great time. It was it was so fun. You, you hooked me at that moment. And then I saw The Midsummer Night's Dream, and I still have tons of little clips of videos on my iPhone from that. And, oh, you, oh, Eden. You just did amazing. I want to bring you into this now. So, Eden, uh, watching you in Midsummer Night's Dream, clearly you love what you're doing. I mean, it was so obvious that you have been brought up very well with Shakespeare and that you enjoy it. So I'd like to hear more of your story and, like, how old were you when you started performing? And what's your what was your favorite role? We'll get into some more questions. Um, Shakespeare has always been a, a point of um, anticipation for me because when my dad started the program, I was too little to join. And so when my brother joined, I was like, it was a, my goal to like also do like what my older brother was doing. Um, and so once I was able to start, it was it was really exciting. I, w and I was about nine um, when I started. Um, I like literally like just turned nine, like the week of my first, um, rehearsal. And so it was, it was really exciting. Um, and, um, what was your first role? My first role was in, uh, we did Macbeth in like a Scottish style, which was really fun. Um, and my, I had uh, two like minor roles in that I was a gentlewoman, Lady Macbeth's uh, gentlewoman, and I was a Macbeth servant, uh, and that was pretty fun. Um, and then uh, back to the Taming of the Shrew. That was, I think, my first big role, and that one I really enjoyed. Um, I think I was in like fifth grade when I did that, uh, and I was the shrew, <laughs> and I, that one I think is one of my favorite ones because at the end of like the play, spoiler, uh, she gets tamed, uh, the shrew, and uh, she has like this whole speech uh, talking to her sister, and I think this widow, uh, who turns out that they were also shrews by being disobedient to their husbands, because their husbands had been betting 
on like, oh, let's see whose wife is the most obedient. And they're and Petruccio was like, oh, mine is totally. And they're like, haha, she's she's not. But then she does come. And I just I love the speech that she does about like respecting your husband. And that's definitely been like a that was definitely a turning point because it made me really kind of think about like not only like what it would be like if I became a wife, but also like how well my mother does it as a wife. Like, wow, that's beautiful. I, I remember that speech and it's, it's a beautiful speech. I agree. Actually, the first time I ever read the speech, it really touched me deeply too. It is a really great speech. Do you remember any of it or any lines from anything? Yes, I do remember a couple do you want to you share? Want to... Do you want to... Yeah, okay. I'd love to go into character for a second here. The whole thing, On the but... spot, whatever you want. All right. It starts off, fie, fie, unmit that threatening, unkind brow, and dart not scornful glances from thine eyes to wound thy lord, thy king, thy governor. It blots thy beauty as frost do bite the meads, confounds thy fame as whirlwind shakes fair blood, buds, and in no sense is meet or amiable. And then... <laughs> I go... And how many years ago did you memorize that? That was like... Like five years ago? No, it was more like three, three years ago. Oh, I I feel like it was four or five because this was way before COVID. Yeah, I guess I was in fifth grade, so fifth. Yeah, it was four years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're great. So what? Um, I want to know a little bit more about how your experience with your dad has helped to shape you and given you a passion for drama. And how has it influenced you? I know you mentioned you're creating a script for The Princess Bride, so we want to get into that as well. But go ahead and share some of some of your thoughts. Um, I've really enjoyed working with my dad. I think it's definitely, like, made my relationship with my father a lot uh, closer. Um, it, I mean, it has its challenges, too, because sometimes if I'm misbehaving, I feel like I'm getting picked on. But, I mean, I deserve that, probably. <laughs> um but uh you don't miss very much yeah that's true the the, the couple times that i have <laughs> um uh and i've i think that i think my dad is one of the most amazing people on the earth that i've ever met and um i i really loved his uh the way he saw literature and Shakespeare had definitely like grew my um, perception about things. Like the, the language uh, has made it a lot easier for me to understand like older literature works. Mm. Like I've been reading Ivanhoe for fun. And I think because of my Shakespeare um, knowledge, I've been able to understand it and I can like laugh and it's funny and I get the jokes and, and so you're how I, old? You're how old? <laughs> uh, fourteen. Yeah, no, that's that's pretty that's pretty major. I, Ivanhoe is tough. Well, I get dad to read it sometimes because the beginning is a little boring, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you're but you're understanding it. That's a big deal. Yes, and I think that has a lot to do with the Shakespeare that I got to do for a a lot. Mm-hmm. And I've just really enjoyed it because I've always been like an avarice reader, but acting. And so I always felt like when I read, I was able to like slip away for a while. But then acting, I feel like I literally am somewhere else. 
And mm-hmm. it's really fun to feel like what it's like to be in the character's shoes, literally, almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just, I feel, I, I feel like when I do the plays, I understand them a lot more than when I just read them, because I've read a couple plays, uh, and it's it's a lot more kind of drab and sad, and mm. I really enjoy doing them, and I feel like there's a lot more value in performing them, because it makes you see it happen before your eyes, and it kind of, it also has a lot to do with teamwork, though, too, because it makes you realize how much you depend on the other actors as well and how much they depend on you. Cause there's been times when we're like getting close to the production and you start freaking out. Cause you're like, are we going to pull through? Mm-hmm. Is this, is this gonna, are we going to make it? Um, and, and it's just, it's, I guess really taught me that just teamwork and like encouragement and, doing scary things because standing up in front of people and trying to put on a show is scary I always get nervous like five minutes before the show I'm like oh my goodness that's good like there's there's no perfect show but it the audience don't know that if you make mistakes and it's and it's it's really worth it at the end when when you finish the play and they applaud and it just makes everything worthwhile all that Mm -hmm. (laughs) panicking and trying to memorize your lines in time it's it it really is like, yeah, I don't know. It's great. Tell me about your project on the Princess Bride and, and how that's going. Tell our our listeners what what how that you and you were sharing your story with me, and I want to hear again for our audience. Uh, so for the Princess Bride, um, my dad had been my dad had been doing uh productions for the school I'm going to right now. Um. And he wasn't going to do one in the spring. And so me and my friends were like, oh, that's sad because we really enjoyed it. The one we did in the summer and the one that we we had literally just finished the one in the fall. We would finished, uh, I think, Much Ado About Nothing. And we were kind of joking. Uh, and one of the girls I was with was like, oh, we could we could do our own thing. We could do The Princess Bride. And we we were joking totally at first. But then... I think one of the teachers found out and and then it was kind of like, well, why not? I mean, I've done tons of plays before and I'm not that terrible at writing and neither is the girl that I'm working with. And so we just, we got it approved by the headmaster and then it just kind of moved on from there. And a couple of times we've looked at each other and like, what are we doing? But I think it's also really helped though because I've worked with my dad so many times. I know that even if it feels like it's going to fall through, I always have that support. And I know my dad's going to support me in almost everything I do. So that's yeah. also been a huge um, motivation. Have you written the script? Have you finished it? Oh, we're working on it. Um, I'm writing it with um, a friend of mine. And we've, like, split up the acts and the scenes. And, like, oh, you write this scene. I'll write this scene. Um, and we're trying to finish it by the end of the spring break. We've had our we had our first editions on uh, last Monday, uh, and there was a couple people out, so I think we might have to do a couple like redo editions, um, just to our, like make sure we're casting okay. But we're we're trying to finish the script this week. Are uh, you we are you not. are you going to be Buttercup? 
No, I'm not. <laughs> you would be perfect as Buttercup, though. <laughs> so are you going to be in it or just directing or both? Um, Originally, I was just going to be, like, helping directing and, like, setting and costumes. But we don't have enough, like, actors because there are kind of a lot of parts. And a lot of them aren't even that major. But just the way we wrote it, it's kind of like we need this character so I think I, I, I am probably going to get uh, like two parts and I think I know what they are, but we haven't come out. We haven't fully casted yet, so I'm still not entirely sure. This is wonderful. And are you going to be doing this at your school? Yes. OK, unless we get a lot of people from our uh, audience that you know want to buy 100 tickets, we might have to find another venue. Because <laughs> this is I want to come see this. This is going to be awesome. Written by a, you know, a student for students. That's just amazing. And it's everybody loves in... The Princess Bride. I mean, who doesn't love that? It's just such a great story. Yeah. yeah. And it's almost entirely student, like, organized. Uh, we have a couple teachers who are, like, supervising and kind of helping us, like, brainstorm ideas. But it's mostly just, like, the me and uh, four other girls who are just, who are doing this. And then the kids who want to hop on with the ride and help us per actually per perform it. So that's exciting. Very exciting. What, Eden, from your experience, what do you, what would you say to a homeschool mom or a teacher who is afraid of reading Shakespeare to little children? Uh, I don't think there is a. I don't think there is a need to be afraid. I mean, there are some things in Shakespeare that are a little bit, like, not appropriate for little children. Um, and so, I mean, there's tons of, like, edited versions of the stories that you can get that you can read to them, like, just as, like, books or stories. Because I have read some of those. They're not like a script, but it's like a story. And those are enjoyable. And, it, I mean, it's not the same as, like, actually, like, performing it but it definitely does like help you get an overview of like the culture that Shakespeare lived in and how he saw the world and just like life in general it 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 really is um something very um just wonderful I think I think classics are are really interesting and it's something that our culture has kind of lost yeah. um, in these like modern years. They're not, people are focusing in more material things. Uh, and Shakespeare really does touch a lot on the, the spiritual. He's very aware of that, uh, especially like in Macbeth, he has ghosts show up mm -hmm. and Hamlet. And it's like, there is a spiritual world and our modern world tries to tell us it doesn't exist and it does. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I and, think Shakespeare's very does does that very well of like kind of throwing that out there and still telling a really good story. Right, Ben. I know that you read Shakespeare stories to Eden when she was before she was nine, before she was in the programs. What can you tell our listeners? What rec um, what versions you recommend to read to children for classroom teachers and for homeschoolers? Well, I'm afraid it's it's been too long uh, for me to tell you which um, kind of prose version I like the best. But yeah, we read a few prose versions uh, to them. Usually before they saw something with us, um, we would read those. 
Um, I, I would always advise when when possible to try to see the show even before reading. Uh, well, then again, uh, it's nice to actually read it if you know you're about to see it to kind of give them a heads up about what they're going to see. Um, but just reading alone, when possible, I'd always encourage the show itself because Shakespeare intended his shows to be seen uh, and performed and experienced, not just read. Um, hmm. Of course, we could always read them. Uh, you know, when the kids get old enough, I'd recommend just reading the script together, assigning parts at the dinner table, and you could sure. read around like that. I know some families who have done that with kids about the same age as mine. Mm -hmm. Now, do you have any opinions on, like, there's the Edith Nesbitt stories, beautiful stories of Shakespeare. There's the Marion Char Charles Lamb, and then Bruce Coville. I like the Bruce Coville picture books quite a bit. I think I might have, I think I might have experienced my first one when I visited your school. Uh, what What are your thoughts on those different versions? Yeah, I had forgotten his name, but yes, the those picture books I quite like. Bruce I would say that those are my favorite. Well, yeah, those yeah. are also my favorite. Mm -hmm. uh, I like them because of the pictures, um, because the names can be tricky. It kind of helps the children kind of identify with a particular person in a particular place, uh, which a script, of course, doesn't give you all of that necessarily like a novel would. Um, so having those pictures are useful. Um, uh, and in addition, he would he would fill in a lot of the background story. I think the Nesbitt uh, and the Lamb stories sometimes abridged so much it was harder to follow where mm -hmm. he will expand upon the story. Of course, it's shorter, but he'll expand upon details of the story so that kind of makes sense when you take it out of the um, kind of theatrical context. And he his books are illustrated beautifully. Yeah, they are. Yeah, beautiful. I personally, when I was homeschooling, I, I used both the Nesbitt and the Mary and Charles Lamb one. And um, I liked the Lamb better because I felt like my children could narrate it better. The Nesbitt one really tough to get narrations out of. And I, I'm not really sure why. I don't know if there was just too much disconnect within the story. The flow was maybe disrupted so that it was harder for the kids to narrate. Do, what are your thoughts? Did you try either of those? Um, yeah. And I, again, I don't remember which one it was. It must have been Nesbitt because there was a similar experience uh, where one of those authors, uh, I think, abridged it so much that it, you just couldn't really get into the meat of who these characters were. Yeah, it's I think felt it was more like Nesbitt. a summary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I agree. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think your your test is a perfect test, especially if you're homeschooling uh, to narrate. You know, if your kids aren't able to narrate something, then maybe it's time to take a step back and either find a different version or or just try something different. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. And even Charlotte Mason says if you're if you're reading a story to the kids and they're not connecting and they're not able to narrate, put it away for a while. Or maybe it's not the right book for them. And some people get you know, really um, kind of been out of shape thinking, well, I, I have to read this book. And well, no, you don't. You can, there's a lot of books. There's a lot of really good books. You can pick up a different one. Um, right. But I, I think the Kova one really does seem to lend itself well to really good narrations. And it's beautiful. Um, so anyhow, yeah. And I know it's out yeah, of I print, agree. but I think I'd like to reach out to Bruce Coville and ask him if he can get his publishers to reprint it. He does have, I think, five of his stories that are available on Audible. So he's reading them. Oh, but, that's excellent. I didn't which know Which is great. But, you know, yeah. it's still not the same as having the picture book in your hand, especially because the illustrations are so well done. They are. So um, let's see. Um, what do you, Ben, say to parents who are – 
maybe taken aback by Shakespeare and feel like it's too hard for kids or it's too uh, broady. You know, wh what do you say to those parents? Yeah, so there's two questions there. And the first uh, I'll address is the content. Um, there is Shakespeare content you don't want to bring to a child. You're not going to bring little children Macbeth. Um, however, we did do the play with, with children as young as nine. Um, you know, there's just some content, of course, that I, I would never do, for example, uh, Othello. Um, yeah. in, in that story, the, the, the man is made to become, uh, through lies, uh, jealous of his wife, and he ends up murdering his wife. So I would never in a million years do that with children. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's some you just won't do. Uh, but then there's other stories that are very simple, like The Tempest and Midsummer Night's Dream, which is about, you know, uh, tension and reconciliation and forgiveness. Uh, and those are wonderful stories to start with. Um, I, I am a little more careful when it comes to the tragedies because the content tends to be a little heavier. Um, so uh, we did Macbeth with a heavy Scottish theme, and we've done – what other tragedy did we do? We did – we started uh, Romeo and Juliet. Oh, yeah. Well, we were going to do a Romeo and Juliet, but then COVID hit, so that one was shut down. Um, and I had put off that one for many years as well. So I'm, I'm very careful with the, uh, with the tragedies because uh, the content. Um, but the fact is, is that most of that kind of content will go over the children's heads, um, either with the language or just because it, the way it's put, it's just they're not going to pick up on it. Uh, but on the other hand, um, I would endorse fairy tales. And if you read the original fairy tales, there's all kinds of content that some people are a little squeamish about with little children. Um, and I think this is kind of a fallacy. Um, the truth is, is that children are very aware of good and evil. Um, they know that there are dragons in the world, um, mm -hmm. and for us to not address those things and sweep it under the rug and pretend like it's not there, I don't think is doing a service. What we find in fairy tales and in good literature like Shakespeare is we acknowledge the dragons in the world, we acknowledge the evil in the world, but we show how do we get through this? How do we navigate through this? Mm -hmm. How do we succeed? Where does justice come in? You know, they'll celebrate when the Wicked Witch is, you know, has to walk on hot irons because they know justice has been done. It's we adults who have a problem with justice because we have so we have such a record of sins. We're like, no, not me. But children in innocence recognize that justice is good and that it must occur. Um, and so when we want to train our children acquiring virtue, well, part of that is, hey, how do we slug through these bad people in these stories? Mm. How do we get through that? You know, and with Shakespeare, you'll often find there's forgiveness, um, there's love, there's friendship, uh, there's all kinds of ways that these characters navigate through hard times. And this is a gift that we can give our children. I love that. Speaking of virtue, I did want to go that direction. Um, one of the concerns I have in some classical schools that I've worked with is that teachers tend to think, you know, they, they have a mindset of, you know, you have to have comprehension questions and you have to have direct instruction in virtue. And I would love to hear your thoughts about how Shakespeare allows, well, literature even in general, a natural way of, of virtue being instilled and mm -hmm. guiding them rather than giving them direct instruction or pointing it out. What's been your experience with, um, you know, applying kind of the methods of Charlotte Mason that are a lot less direct instruction. Not that there's anything wrong with direct instruction. Right. But but how do you bring out the conversations of virtue from the children and what they've gleaned from it without like 
giving them a sermon on the virtue that's in the story. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. How, how do you do that? I want our teachers to kind of glean from your wisdom and experience. Yeah. Well, you can't learn virtue from a definition. Um, that's not the way humans are wired. Um, we learn virtue through modeling. Um, and so that's when literature becomes very important if you pick the right literature, um, because we see models of virtue. Um, that's what children recognize and can aspire to. Um, they, they understand things uh, very concretely, not in the abstract. And so to have kind of discussion guide questions and definitions and talk about it a virtue in the abstract, um, again, I'm not going to say don't do that. I'm not going to say it's valueless, um, but it won't capture their hearts. Mm -hmm. uh, and virtue is a matter of the heart. Um, so stories capture the heart. Um, stories are, are the best way that we can teach virtue outside of living virtuous lives ourselves. Um, the scripture offers that to us and great literature offers to that, uh, uh, offers that to us. And, and of course, um, I would advocate that Shakespeare does too. Mm -hmm. Are there any kind of questions that you ask the students when they're narr like when you read the story and they narrate, do they automatically bring up the virtues they notice? Or do you ask any kind of questions like what virtues did you notice? I mean, how, how do you do that? What, what has been your experience? Well, I can't say I've been consistent uh, with asking the cast's reflective questions, although I have a few times. For an example, when kids are very candid, I, I asked my cast from Macbeth, what did we learn? Because it was a tragedy, so I'm being a little more careful about it. And I said, uh, so what did we learn from this? And the first kid raised his hand and said, never listen to your wife. <laughs> 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 Wait a minute. Okay, well, <laughs> so they're paying attention, but the conversation continued, and uh, you know the thrust of that conversation was about temptation and resisting temptation, because uh, yeah. that we even had a we had a physical object in that story. I'll help bring home that point: is we had an apple that was brought into the scene several times. And uh, Macbeth would look at the apple, and you know it was of course symbolic of this temptation. And I can't, I can't remember. I think it was his wife who was encouraging him to to do this, you know, heinous crime, this murder. And she hands him the apple, and he takes it. So it, it's very clear what we're trying to do on the set. And again, this is one of the reasons why, you know, with a good uh, direct show, you know, they're going to get a lot more out of it if you if you do it right on the stage um, than just reading it cold. Um, and so, at the end of the play, though, <laughs> Macbeth throws the apple in frustration and anger. Um, so even, even through that action, we were able to kind of tell the story. So the kids understood that. And again, mm -hmm. they, they get excited about the story. They know it's hard. Everything Eden said about the teamwork and the, mm -hmm. the challenge and the language, all of that comes to a head in the performance. And so it's not just that we're going to have had an abstract conversation about it, but that's going to stay with them the rest of their life. And when you have something as powerful as the image of our apple and understanding about, you know, the deception of temptation. I mean, that's a lifelong lesson right there. And, mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't require a lot of nagging and it doesn't require guided guideline questions. Uh, right. But the lessons learned. Yeah, you didn't have to say to the students, okay, so this apple is symbolic of, and, no. you know, you, you just knew that they were getting it. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's we, great. We, we take for granted, I think, uh, that children can't understand something. They understand, I think, a lot more than we give them credit for. That's true. That's true. So, Ben, what advice can you give to schools that do not have a drama program? What, where could they start? What resources 
would you recommend? And I would love to have you be part of our consulting team <laughs> with headmasters, possibly do some professional development online for classroom teachers for drama. Um, tell, tell us where, where our teachers and our headmasters can go from here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and by the way, yeah, that sounds wonderful. I would love to have that opportunity. Um, well, I think that the simplest thing, if you're just starting out and if you don't have, I, I did have, I didn't mention this earlier. I did have a theater background in college a bit. Um, actually, I stopped the theater major because I said, well, I'll never make a living with theater, but <laughs> well, here I am. But uh, in any case, um, I think it's really simple to start. If you have no experience and nobody on your uh, staff, or if it's just a homeschool uh, situation, you can always start by Reader's Theater. Um, Reader's Theater is a great way to get started um, because it's fun, uh, because you start breaking the characters into parts, which helps with the visible part, because sometimes those names can get confusing. Uh, and uh, it doesn't require money. It doesn't require a lot of setup. So I would say the first step is a reader's theater. Reading then, through plays aloud with characters. Reader's theater. We'll put a link in the show notes for that. Yeah, okay. sure. Okay. And then, uh, you know, you can move on from there. It's really simple to just, you know, it doesn't have to be a huge production. We've done productions outside. As you mentioned, sometimes the natural surroundings were our setting. I think your your play that you're doing this summer. Yeah, we're, we're going to do outside in the front of the school. Because there's a nice wall, there's vines, there's yeah. trees, so yeah, it has everything you need for the set. Right. Do you have right. enough seating for a thousand people if we get a lot of podcast listeners that <laughs> no. want to drive down? <laughs> if we have when a thousand is... people, then we build the amphitheater. <laughs> right. That's true. When When is it going to be? Uh, it's going to be, I think, uh, this June at the very beginning, and it's either the 10th or 11th. Okay. Um, and we, since we are doing it at the school, we do have some flexibility with the schedule, which is kind of nice. Um, and I think we're still trying to find a set date because since it is, we've like kind of pulled it through the summer. There has been a little bit of like people who want to do the thing can't do it because summer stuff. Yeah. So that has posed a little bit of a challenge, but I think it's definitely going to be around those two dates for sure. Well, if any of our local DFW listeners are interested, they can email me and I'll give them the date once you have it set. Right. Okay. So Ben, you were, you were saying about the natural setting, any other thoughts about getting started? Yeah. Another simple thing to do is, is use a local church. There's lots of churches that have uh, stages that are willing to help. I know a lot of little groups around in this area have done that as well. Um, and then, uh, you know, we rented the theater at a certain point, uh, which there was a great deal there. That's actually getting harder and harder and more and more expensive. Uh, but there's lots of creative ways again, uh, for in churches or auditoriums or outside to, to stage in. Um, costumes, of course, again, you can have a lot of fun with this uh, by setting the scene in a different era. Uh, it doesn't have to be of the Renaissance era. It doesn't have to be the Middle Ages if you do Hamlet. It could be modern era. Shakespeare himself actually had his actors wearing modern clothing. Whatever was in fashion in his day is what they were wearing, and people could understand uh, Though through the language and through imagination, where they were supposed to be—that's mm. that's the audience participation, uh, the part that they have to play in the whole production. Um, so there's lots of inexpensive uh, ways to get started that way. Um, there's uh, uh, ways to abridge the script yourself. Um, I think I might be making some uh, scripts available that I've already abridged um, right. to kind of cut it down for everybody. Uh, if, if that's a need out there, I would love yeah. to help with that. Yeah, that'd be great. I think that's going to be a need. Um, so we usually close our um, our podcast with a question. And um, 
I've changed the questions up a little bit for you guys. So both of you, I would like the answer from both of you. You can answer one of two questions. What is a quote from a book or a play that has had a huge impact on you? Or what role in a play has had the most profound effect on you and why? Okay. Well, uh, one of my favorite lines from the Odyssey, uh, I'll tell you this. Um, he's on Circe's Island and he's been there for many years, kind of a captive. He's a captive of paradise. Uh, Circe has offered him eternal life, paradise on earth, um, all the good things he could possibly imagine and want. Uh, but then the gods come down and send her a message. You've got to let him go. And so reluctantly, she says to him, okay, I have to let you go, but you could choose to stay. Remember, eternal life, I'm the most beautiful goddess. You're going to love being here, all the foods you can eat. You could choose that, or if you leave, you're going to suffer. And Odysseus says, even if some god beats me upon the waves, uh, I'm going home. Let this adventure follow. Um, I love those words. Um, they're really they're Christian words as well. They're better as you, as a Christian though, because we know we have a good Father who uh, will help us through those trying times to get us where we need to go, uh, and it should encourage all of us to try something hard. That's good. That's lovely, Ben. Eden, how about you? Um, I don't have such a great quote as that, but um. I guess I guess it was the taming of the shrew that I've already talked about. That one was definitely uh, something that had a huge impact on me. Uh, yeah, I think that one, that one's it. Okay, well that's good. Well, thank you both so much for for joining us. This is going to be a real blessing to our listeners. Really appreciate you guys. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for listening. We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education. Also, be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be, in a few words, this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know, best of all, what it is to behave under it, as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven. <laughs>